Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning. You are our great God, the creator of all things and the author of redemption. We thank you for sending the person of your Son to accomplish our salvation. Lord Jesus, we thank you for willingly coming to be our Savior. We thank you for your perfect life as the second Adam and as uh, and your atoning death as the Lamb of God. And we praise you for your resurrection unto glory as our eternal priest and king. And we thank you that, Father, you have sent the Holy Spirit to invade our lives, to change our hearts, to open blind eyes and open deaf ears and take out our hearts of stone and grant us repentance and faith while uniting us to Christ and giving us every spiritual blessing in him. We know that we have every reason to thank you and to praise you this morning. And we love to sit attentively before the teaching of your word. And we pray that you would instruct us in the truth this morning and that it would not just rattle around in our brains, but that it would sink into our hearts and have a transformative effect upon us so that we would walk out of here knowing you better, uh, knowing the gospel better, um, understanding the teaching of your word and how uh, what you require of us as your new covenant people, and that we would be changed as a result. And so we ask your blessing upon our time uh, in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, let's dive into our class, I just want to start again by reviewing. You remember Paul wanted to preach the gospel in Rome because it revealed a righteousness from God which everyone who believed, by which everyone who believed could be saved. That's how he started out the book. And then in that long section, Romans 1.18 through 3.19, he explained why everyone needed the saving righteousness revealed in the gospel because they're under God's wrath for their unrighteousness. And then we moved into Romans three twenty one through 31, that heart of the book where uh, Paul explains that the gospel reveals a righteousness which is given to us by God as a gracious gift and that it is based on Christ's atoning sacrifice and given to every sinner who believes in him. And that's how God can be both just and the justifier of sinners. And then... We talked about Romans 4, where Paul took one text, Romans 5, or Genesis 15, 6, from the Old Testament, and he expounded it throughout that chapter, uh, showing that this idea, this gift of justification by faith, is not entirely new to the New Testament, but was actually taught in the Old Testament as well. And then, finally, uh, well, next, Romans 5, he talked about, began to talk about how a justified person also possesses other blessings besides justification. Peace with God, grace, a standing in his favor, joy, a hope of future glory, all through faith in Jesus Christ. And it was all because of Christ's obedience as the second Adam being greater than and overcoming the disobedience of the first Adam. And so that takes us through Romans 5. And if we keep going into Romans 6, we saw that Paul explained that those who are justified by grace through faith in Christ, and we might add, apart from their works, uh, he explained why they cannot continue living in sin. Even though they're justified apart from their works, it doesn't mean that they can continue living in sin. And he explained two reasons. One, is because they have died to sin and lived to God. And two, because they have been set free from slavery to sin and become slaves to God. So he sort of used two images there. One, death and resurrection. Two, slavery and freedom. To explain our new relationship to sin as a result of being united to Christ by faith. And now today... We're going to look at Romans 7, and really what you see, even from the first word of 7, 7 verse 1, you see, or, 
you can see that really he's continuing what he'd been talking about in Romans 3, or 6, sorry. And he's continuing this general theme of of Romans 6. You know, why a believer who's been justified by faith apart from works can't continue living in sin. But instead of using the theme of death and resurrection, like he did in chapter 6, 1 through 14, or the theme of slavery and freedom, like he did in chapter 6, 15 through 23, he uses a different metaphor, the metaphor of marriage and remarriage. And that's what we see uh, in Romans 7, 1 through 12, although we're going to see that he also has a little discussion at the end about another potential objection to something that he says. So this is the main theme, and then there's a sub point that he hits as well, which we'll talk about. Okay, so that kind of brings us up to speed where we're at. Let's start by just reading Romans 7, 1 through 3. So if someone would be willing to read that, that would be great. Romans 7, 1 through 3. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly... She will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Okay. So just by way of summary here, he's establishing a principle in these opening verses of the chapter that the old covenant law is only binding on a person as long as they live. And he then illustrates this principle from uh, a particular Old Covenant law, that is what the Old Covenant law says about marriage or teaches about marriage. Now, I'm, I'm putting Old Covenant law here because I think that in this context, uh, while the word law can refer to different things in different contexts, sometimes it's more narrowly focused, sometimes it's more broadly focused, sometimes he's referring to all of the Old Covenant law as a whole, sometimes the Ten Commandments, etc. We've seen this. But I think in this context, he's speaking in these redemptive historical categories of previously, before Christ, was the administration of the Old Covenant law, the Old Covenant and its law. But now, Christ has come, and something new has been inaugurated, and that would be the New Covenant. And so I think he's looking at the Old Covenant law as a whole here. And and he's pointing out to those Christians, brothers, he says, who know the law, who who are familiar with the Old Covenant law, that it's this principle, he's starting out with this principle that it's only binding upon a person as long as they live. And then he illustrates it from this particular law regarding marriage. So just to start out there, you see that word or, verse 1, you can see that, you know, he's basically going to provide another line of reasoning for this argument that he had been developing in chapter 6. And particularly, this is flowing out of uh, chapter 6, verses 15 through 23, where he talked about being freed from slavery to sin and now bound to obey God. And now he says, or, and he's bringing in another line of reasoning and so the main, the purpose of the line of reasoning is to show why a believer can't continue living in sin, right? That's the whole argument that he's been establishing in chapter 6, and now he's going to do it in one more way, right? So you could tell immediately this is a pretty important subject to Paul. He's devoted an entire chapter to it, and now he's coming back to it again one more time from a different angle here in chapter 6. And then if you look at verse 1, okay, just read it again. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now, he's clearly speaking to Christian readers, but he's assuming that they understand the old covenant law. I think this is an interesting thing, actually, that you can see throughout the New Testament. If you step back and you think about who Paul's writing to in his letters, you know, like, the Galatians, right? Or 
the Ephesian, the Ephesian letter, probably a circular letter to various churches in Asia Minor, but primarily Gentiles. There are some Jews, primarily Gentiles. If you think about it, you have a hard time understanding those letters at points, right? I mean, there was probably a whole season in your life when you read Galatians and you were like, okay. Um, and one of the things that you begin to see when you read through these letters that Paul writes to the churches is that he's assuming quite a bit of understanding of the Old Testament, isn't he? To these Gentile Christians. Why would that be? Well, that was their Bible, right? The New Testament was in the process of being written. So Paul's going around and teaching these new believers. And what is he using as his text? The Old Testament scripture. So no doubt he had taught these Christians that he was in the churches that he was planting. Some of whom were Jews and would have been more familiar with the Old Testament. But many of them were Gentiles. And he's teaching them out of the Old Testament, teaching the gospel and sound doctrine, not only through the teaching of Jesus, but also using the Old Testament. So it, doesn't, it shouldn't surprise us that he would assume that his Christian readers would know the law. Or, yeah, he says, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Now, it's possible that he might have had you know, his Jewish Christian readers sort of as a special emphasis here. But no doubt he expected all of the brothers, as he says, do you not know brothers, to have been familiar with the Old Covenant law from the Old Testament. He's appealing then to his Christian readers understand, who understand stood the Old Covenant law, and he's pointing out just a simple point that a person is only obligated to keep the law as long as he or she lives. So you see that there? The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Say, okay, that makes sense. Uh, once they're, a person's dead, they're not under the old, they wouldn't have been under the old covenant law anymore, right? Then in verses two and three, he illustrates the point by taking one particular law, that is the law of marriage, and you can see there's a little bit of a nuance here, right? Because he speaks of how a woman is freed from what the law teaches about marriage. Uh, she's freed from those laws once her husband dies. So instead of saying, you know, you are freed from the laws of marriage when you die, he takes a woman and the obligation that she has to her husband and says she's freed from those obligations defined by the old covenant law once her husband dies. So death frees her, the death of her husband frees her from her obligations to her husband. I don't mean that to come across in some kind of cold way, you know, like, like she would be like, yes, you know. <laughs> but rather, I, I just think he's just making a point about the law ceasing to be binding upon her with respect to her marriage upon the death of her spouse. So easily, this could easily be uh, switched gender-wise. You know, it could be the husband and the wife. And he makes two points. First point he makes in verse 2 is that when her husband dies, she's free from the old covenant law that obligates her to remain married to him. Right? So for a married woman, verse 2, is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is freed from the law of marriage. Okay, so pretty simple. She is bound by the law to remain married to her husband as, and be his wife as long as he lives. But once he dies, that law no longer applies to her. She's freed from that obligation. And then second point he makes is in verse 3. He says, the point is basically that when her husband dies, she's freed from the old covenant law, which would prohibit her from marrying another man. All right. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about this, but you can see the basic point there in verse 3. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's freed from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. 
Okay, so pretty simple. But there is a question. What does this little phrase here mean, if she lives with another man? Because in our modern lingo, what do we think of? Unmarried, yeah. yeah, we would think of a woman, you know, leaving her husband and going and moving in with some other man, uh, which does happen in our society, right? So that that's what, how we might interpret it. But let's think about this a little bit. This phrase where he says, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. What does Paul mean by lives with another man? The Greek verb that's translated lives with by the English Standard Version is somewhat ambiguous. The verb is the general verb to come to. But of course, in this type of context, it wouldn't be translated in that sort of wooden way. In this type of context, it conveys the idea of belonging to someone relationally. And so if you look in a Greek lexicon, they're going to put this particular verse into a section under the heading of a definition that says belonging to or being joined to someone. So it's a the idea of relational belonging. So you could say she will be called an adulteress if she belongs to another man while her husband is still alive. But in that cultural context, you know, where things like dating, right, <laughs> or living together would have been virtually unheard of, right? Was there things like prostitution? Of course there was. Were there some people who were having affairs and things like that? Absolutely. Um, I think of John chapter uh, 4 and the woman at the well, right? You've had five husbands and the man you're with is not your husband, etc. So it's not to say that that didn't happen in some ways, but this sort of like just open going and living with another man while you're still, that would have been like virtually unheard of in that day. Um, And so when Paul says, if she lives with another man, if she belongs to another man, there's a strong implication of marriage there, right? In fact, the New International Version, the older King James actually translates the word married, marries. If she she will be called an adulteress if she marries another man while her husband is alive. Okay? Now, obviously, she wouldn't marry another man if she was still married to her current husband. So what's the implication here? Divorce. Some kind of divorce. So that's why probably what he's talking about here is she will be called an adulteress if she remarries after an unlawful divorce. I think... I'm going to suggest that that's what's being implied here. And in fact, you could see that almost that exact... It may be that Paul actually has Jesus' teaching on marriage and remarriage in his mind as he's saying this. He does actually refer to Jesus' teaching on marriage and remarriage and explicitly in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I don't know if you guys remember that section where he says, you know, the Lord not I, says, and then he says, and then I, not the Lord. And he doesn't mean that somehow, okay, what I'm going to say here isn't authoritative. He just means the Lord hasn't spoken explicitly to this particular issue, but he has spoken to this other issue. So Paul clearly was familiar with the teaching of Jesus on marriage and remarriage. He may have actually had it in mind. But let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount and just look quickly at what uh, Jesus taught on this subject. Matthew 5.32. Matthew 5.32. Jesus had said, and remember that he's interacting with the teaching of the rabbis here, where the rabbis had said, he said, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, that's... Interacting certainly with rabbinical sort of tradition, but it's also that rabbinical tradition all swirled around one particular Old Testament verse, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, where Moses uh, famously commanded a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce if he found something in her that was unclean, etc. And there's lots of things that we could say about this, but 
He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And then he says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, and then I, this is why I said divorce, unlawful divorce, right? Because he says, except on the ground of sexual immorality, the word is porneia, referred to a variety of different kinds of sexual morality, but obviously a uh, adultery would probably be foremost in his mind, but he doesn't limit it to that, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So if there's been an unlawful divorce, it's interesting that here Jesus says, you men, if you divorce your wife on any other grounds that besides she was unfaithful to you, I think that's the implication, you make her commit adultery. How, how would that be? Because what's she probably going to do, especially in that day? She's probably going to marry again. And if she does, do you see the implication? If there's been an unlawful divorce, and then, she, then you're basically making her commit adultery, because especially in that day, this is why you know, widows and orphans were, you know, they were the special objects of help because they were often destitute if so if you were unmarried woman unless you went back to your father's house you could be destitute so typically you would remarry just for the sake of your livelihood right to be able to survive so there was an injustice here going on when men would divorce their wife so they could be with another one another woman and leaving her in a destitution where she would often remarry but that would be Adulterous, right? And he goes on to say, whoever marries a divorced woman, in other words, the man that takes her, commits adultery as well. So you see, in the case of an unlawful divorce, if it's not on the grounds of porneia, uh, sexual morality, that remarriage is adulterous. That's his point. But do you see, that's exactly the point, right? She will be called an adulteress if she lives with or belongs to or marries another man while her husband is alive. I think the implication is that after an unlawful divorce, because she wouldn't marry another man if she was still married to the first man, right? And the, you could see a similar thing in Matthew chapter 19, where he addresses the subject of divorce again. And uh, if you just go down to verse eight he says because of your hardness of heart moses allowed you to divorce your wives but from the beginning it was not so and i say to you whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery so you see remarriage after an unlawful divorce results in adultery and i i think that's basically he's almost parroting jesus's teaching here in in my mind he's saying according to the law, if uh, a woman, uh, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with, belongs to, marries another man while her husband is alive. So there's been some kind of divorce, presumably not a lawful divorce. If she remarries, she'll be called an adulteress. So I think that's the idea there. And I just make this note that I think that the New Testament does, this is, my position on divorce and remarriage, I, I, think, I do think it indicates that there is such a thing as a lawful divorce. Don't mistake that as a, a good divorce. Divorce is always bad. It's always the result of sin. But at times, God does permit divorce. You see that except for sexual immorality. And I would also say that 1 Corinthians 7.15, where Paul talks about if a Christian has an unbelieving spouse and that unbelieving spouse doesn't want to remain married or refuses to remain married he says you should let that person go in such cases one is not bound and i think the idea there is that they are free to remarry so some disagree with me on that there's a variety of opinions on this matter but i think that's the basic idea here and uh, if you ask where in the old covenant law where did jesus point in in the old covenant documents God's intention from, for marriage from the beginning in Genesis 2. Uh, you could also point to points in, on marriage in the Old Testament law, in the Old Covenant law given through Moses on Mount Sinai. In other words, the actual stipulations of the law. Um, Deuteronomy 24 is one passage, but there are others.
Okay? So he's saying this is the teaching of, of the law. And he's making the point, if there's been, if there's a remarriage, she will be called an adulteress if her husband's still alive. Again, with the caveat that probably is speaking of an unlawful divorce having taken place. But if her husband dies, she is freed from the constraints of those old covenant laws. So his point is the old covenant law is only binding upon a person as long as they live. That's his principle he's establishing. He's illustrating it through the laws regarding marriage and remarriage from the Old Testament. So any any questions before we move forward here? Yeah. You were saying that uh, it could have been a man or a woman in that situation, but I wonder if Paul used women because of what he says in Ephesians about the church. You know, that we're the bride of Christ. So mm-hmm. There is a certain sense when... I think he does... I think you're on to something in the sense that when he moves forward in the text, he's going to make a comparison between what's happened to us as Christians with respect to the old covenant law and Christ. So I think he does probably zero in from the perspective of a woman rather than the other way around because of that. However, it it should also be pointed out that if he is thinking about Jesus' teaching, Jesus sort of focuses on that as well from it from that perspective as well but it certainly would apply either way in fact in first corinthians 7 paul does apply it either way to men or to women it was also true that in that day it was far less typical for a woman to divorce a man not totally unheard of than it was for a man to divorce a woman like a, a jewish men there was a whole debate about this among the rabbis and there was a whole school of thought that a a man could divorce a woman for basically any cause some of the rabbis even said you know if she burns your dinner that's enough cause right and then there was another school where where they said no it has to be something far more serious and hence the debate and the rabbi the jews and jesus there trying to drag him into the debate and force him to fall out on one side or the other it was sort of a trap and he just like he always did in those situations sort of cut to the heart of the matter and uh you know didn't get caught in their trap any other any other questions on this so far okay let's read romans 7 4 through 6 if someone would read that passage likewise my brothers you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for, the, for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Okay, a lot here. Um, Let me just summarize here. I think his basic point is just as a woman is freed from the old covenant laws regarding marriage when her husband dies, so he draws a parallel here. In a similar way, believers are freed from the old covenant law altogether when they are united to Christ. You could add in when they are united to Christ in his death. So, a woman is freed from the Old Covenant laws about marriage when her husband dies. Believers are freed from the Old Covenant law altogether when they are united to Christ. So, there, that word likewise there in verse 4, it indicates that there is going to be this parallel between what he said in verses 1 through 3 about a woman being freed from the Old Covenant laws regarding marriage when her husband dies. There's a parallel between that and what he's about to say concerning believers and what does he say about believers verse 4 when believers i'm summarizing it here when believers are united to christ in his death and his resurrection they are released from the old covenant law to be joined to him and then i'm adding this in the bonds of the new covenant i think that's implied here and we'll i'll show you why 
But you see, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Now, this isn't coming in a vacuum, is it? Right? You remember Romans chapter 6, how it started. You have been buried, therefore, with him in baptism, right? Um, he talked about, it was all about how, in the beginning section there, about how believers are united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection, right? Symbolized by baptism. When you go under the water and when you come out, it's symbolizing that you have come to participate with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. That is, the benefits of his death and resurrection have become yours as you are united to Christ by faith. So when he says this, this isn't you know coming out of the blue. It should already be sort of going around in your mind. Oh yeah, we've talked about this, right? And so his point here is that when believers are united to Christ in his death, right, and in his resurrection, as he'd already talked about in chapter 6, they are released from the old covenant law in order to be joined to him. Right? So you see that there. So that you may belong to another. And who is it? To him who has been raised from the dead, to Jesus Christ. So he's drawn upon this, the laws regarding marriage and remarriage. He's saying when there's a death, a woman is freed from her, her first marriage and freed to marry another. And now here he says, when there is a death with you, when you have died with Christ, you are freed from the old covenant administration and in order to be joined, to belong to, right? There's that language again, in order to belong to Christ. And of course, that, that isn't a covenantless union, is it? That's why I say, I think the implication is joined to Christ in a new covenant. In fact, when you start getting down to here and you say there's this contrast between serving in the old way of the written code, right? That's relating to God through the old covenant and serving in the new way of the spirit. That whole language of the spirit of God and the new way, that was all rooted in the prophets who spoke of a, a you know, a new covenant new hearts, right? New temple, new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth. It was, it's all this uh, anticipation of the coming of the Messiah and, and making and bringing about something new that would involve a new covenant relationship and new hearts for the people of God as well as forgiveness. So th- there's a strong uh, flavor of a change in the eras of redemptive history from old covenant to new covenant here, right? So I think when you are up here and he talks about you belonging to another, you being joined to Christ, this is in the bonds of the new covenant, right? So when you die with Christ, you are freed from the old covenant relationship with God and you're brought into the new covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, right? And that makes sense because... Um, the New Testament uses the imagery, right, of marriage to describe our relationship with Christ. Ephesians 5 and other places as well. Many other places. All right. Then verses 5 and 6, he points out that this change, what I would argue in their covenant relationship from the old covenant administration, where they were under the old covenant law, to this new relationship with Christ, which I would argue is defined by the new covenant, when you have this change of relationship and change of covenant relationship, it's accompanied by a change in their ability to serve God. And here again, the idea of being released from the law here, the idea is not that, oh, I don't have to keep God's commands anymore. That's certainly not what Paul means, right? In fact, you, 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 you haven't read the letters of Paul if you think that's what he means here. The idea is not being released from the laws, ah, oh, free to finally, I don't have to keep those darn commands anymore. Um, no, we're called to fulfill the law of God. We're called to fulfill the commands of Christ. 
But the idea, why would it be a good thing to be released from the law, that is, released from that old covenant way of relating to Christ? What was deficient about that? Not bad, right? Paul will go on to say the law is holy, just, and good. But what was the problem? What was lacking so that the writer of Hebrews would, would say that the new covenant is better? Right. Yeah, I mean, if someone... Have you ever tried, you know, so let's just say you're raising kids, you have no reason to believe they're unregenerate, right? And you give them commands. You say, don't do this, do this. We should be good, right? Well, what's the problem? They're, they're in bondage to sin, right? Which is kind of what he'd been talking about before. They're enslaved to sin. So you can receive the commands from God, from Mount Sinai, tablets of stone, but they had an evil, unbelieving heart. They needed a new heart. So the new covenant comes with better blessings, better promises. The promises of full and final forgiveness of sin. I shall forgive their iniquities and remember their sin no more. And a promise of an inward transformation. By the Spirit, by the way, right? I will put my Spirit within them and cause them to walk in my way, right? I will take out their hearts of stone and give them a new heart. I will write my law upon their hearts, not on stone tablets, on their heart. So this is his point, I believe. While we were living in the flesh, and the idea is you could be under the old covenant and just be in the flesh. You think of Ahab, and you think of, uh, I mean, on and on down the line, all the kings of Israel, they were in the old covenant, but they were just in the flesh, right? And in that condition, or their sinful passions, how did they respond to the law? Well, they never saw a command they didn't want to break, right? <laughs> in fact, when they heard commands, they wanted to break it, right? It's sort of like when you tell your kids, right? Don't do this. All of a sudden, they're like, ooh, maybe that might want to do that, right? That's what he's saying. Their sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now, but now, in this new era in redemptive history, we, believers, are released from the law, from that deficient administration, which was the old covenant, which came with commands, but no inward transformation. We have died to, the, to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So when it says held us captive, I think the idea is under the old covenant, you were held captive to sin. You were under the rule of death. You were enslaved to various passions and pleasures. It was an administration marked by slavery to sin and death. That doesn't mean there weren't true believers who did have new hearts under the new old covenant. But that wasn't a blessing promised under the old covenant. And so he's saying, look, this change of covenant relationship has come with a change in, in our ability to serve God. We now serve him in a new way that is by the Spirit. So one thinks of Galatians chapter 5, right? The fruits of the flesh versus the fruits of the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit. Okay, any any questions on that before we move forward there? Yes. Okay, so um, help me if I'm misunderstanding the metaphor, but in the previous verses, it's the woman whose husband dies, right. and she's set free to be with a new husband. Yeah. But in, in these... Is it saying you have died to the law? So yeah. is it just the weakness of the metaphor, or is there? A yeah, I think I. I think the metaphor is not perfect. It's not like a. It's not like he's saying every element will be carried over one to one exactly. I think he's just pointing out that under the old covenant law, old covenant, the laws would apply to you as long as there was until there was death. That's his general principle, and then he's applying the principle to us. Um, the Old Covenant applied to us until Old Covenant law applied to us, and we would say, I would say that 
you know, who would he be thinking of primarily there? Those that were in the old covenant community, saying this is how it worked. It applied to you until you die. And this time, it's you who die and in Christ. So I, right, there, there's clearly a somewhat of a not one-to-one relationship between the metaphor, or it's, I mean, it's not really a metaphor. It's more of an illustration of how the old covenant law worked. And how he's applying the principle now to believers. So, I, yeah, I do think it's not like it shouldn't be taken as every element is carried over in a one-to-one way, if that makes sense. Any, anyone else? This interpretive question, what does Paul mean when he says that Christians have died to the law, particularly through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another? I think Paul is drawing a parallel here between a, the way a woman is no longer bound to her husband when he dies, but is free to marry another. And the way believers are no longer bound to the old covenant law, obviously if they were a Jew, right? When they are united to Christ in his death, so that they might be joined to him. So when it says, through the body of Christ, I'm interpreting that as united to Christ in his death. Right? That the body, through the body of Christ, would be through his death in the body on the cross. Okay, Because that, that language of through the body of Christ could be confusing. I've already pointed out, I think that the language of the old way of the written code is old covenant language. And the new way of the spirit, that's new covenant language. And that indicates that what Paul's talking about in verse 4 is a believer being released from the old covenant and join to Christ in the new covenant. So I've already kind of talked about that. And I think his point in verse 4 is that the means by which believers are released from the old covenant law to be joined to Christ in the new covenant is their union with Christ in his death. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So Paul uses this language all the time, right? Not just in Romans 6 where he talked about being buried with Christ in his death. But also in places like Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. So there's a union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. So he's saying, that's what he means when he talks about died to the law through the body of Christ. So Christ freed believers from the old covenant law. And how, how is it that the, the death of Christ frees us from the old covenant law? Well, particularly because Christ fulfilled the law both in his active and passive obedience you could say he fulfilled all the demands of the law in his life in his perfect life but here it's focusing on his death what did he do in his death this is what theologians call his passive obedience he bore the curses of the law for our sin in our place on the cross galatians 3 paul says he freed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us as it is written, cursed is the one who hangs on the tree, right? So how is it that being united with Christ in his death frees us from the old covenant law? Well, it's that Christ fulfills the demands of the law, in a sense, of the old covenant law in our place. He, bear, he bore the curses of the law against us for our sin in our place at Calvary and thereby freed us to be joined to him in the new covenant any questions on that interpretive point all right i I realize that there in any of these things in romans this is why you have romans commentaries that are like so thick because there's so many things that that we could talk about but i think just in a general way that's the point okay let's look at the next part of the passage here romans 7 7 through 8a And I'm going to read this for the sake of time. It says, What shall we say then? What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of of covetousness. Okay, so... Here we see that Paul's responding to another potential objection that he could see being raised to something that he had just said about the law. Does anyone looking back, 
can anyone see what he might be keying off of, what he said about the law that might raise this particular objection, right? That the law is the law. Does that mean the law is sin? Right. Kind of goes back to chapter 6. But what is it that he just said in the previous verses that might have led someone to say, well, are you saying that the law is sin? Or sinful? You died to the law, maybe? Verse 5, I heard someone say. What, is, what about verse 5? The sinful passions aroused by the law. Right. I think that's it. Paul had said, you know, almost in a passing comment, my sinful passions aroused by the law. Whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) The law stirred up your sinful passions? Does that mean, are you saying, Paul, that the law then is sinful? Because it stirred up sin in you, right? This is what he's answering here. So, what do you think he's going to (laughs) say? Well, there's that old emphatic negation, right? Absolutely not. Now, he makes two points here. He says, yet, okay, no, what, I, what I've said does not mean that the law is sinful. But if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet, for instance, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So his point is that the law is not sinful because, yes, it arouses, or my passions are aroused, my sinful passions are aroused by the law, but rather the law, the commands of God's law, reveal to us what God forbids, right? They show us what is wrong, what is sinful. And then verse 8, he says, but sin, and here I think when he says this type of thing, he's talking, I think, about in chapters, later in chapter 7, he's going to call, but sin that lies within me. In other words, his sinful nature, that part of him that is corrupted by sin, right? He says, you could even say, but my sinful nature, right? Or, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produce in me all kinds of covetousness. What does he mean? I think he says, I think he means this, that our sinful nature responds to the knowledge of of what God forbids, that the law gives us, right? The law shows us what God forbids. Our sinful nature takes that knowledge and then does what God forbids, right? And there's a sense in which, as you read that, you go, oh yeah, I, I know, I know what that's about, right? You know that your sinful nature is, finds a, gains a thrill out of doing the very things that God says not to do. Our sinful nature, you might say, is transgressive by nature. It is bent upon sin. And that's something that, you know, the world doesn't believe that. The world says, no, I don't think people are inherently bad. I think people are inherently good, and especially kids. They're definitely innocent, right? The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says we are sinful, and our sin nature is bent upon doing what God forbids. And anyone who's really honest about their heart, I think, can actually see that. Um, it's just that generally we're not honest. We don't, we're not that self-reflective, right? Now, he says in verses, the rest of verse 8 through verse 12, this is the rest of our text here. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So Paul follows up on what he just said by explaining that it's sin aroused by the law that leads to our death. Not the law itself. Does that make sense? Which is inherently good. The law is good. It's sin that uses the law to 
bring me under the death, the, under the condemnation and punishment of death. So verses not 8 and 9, 8b and 9, For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. Now, I think what Paul is doing here is he's most likely describing the experience that we all know of, of not really being tempted to do something before you know that it's prohibited. And so... Right. Yeah, and except bringing it into the moral realm of like other various uh, moral issues. And, And you can see like a child has a sinful nature. But... I think what we mean when we talk about children being innocent is they often are just not exposed to a lot of different things that, and therefore they don't, we get more sophisticated in our sin the more that we know the types of things that are wrong, right? And and I think that's what we mean about the innocence of a child is they have far less knowledge about what is wrong, right? That you gain as you, as you get older, it doesn't mean they don't have a sinful nature. But I think here he's just describing this experience. Now, we, could, we would say that there's, a, there's obviously this would need to be qualified in different ways. Because we do, there's a sense in which we have, we'll all have the law of God written upon our hearts. So at what point in your life do you, know, do you not know that it's wrong to steal, right? <laughs> but I think the issue here is revealed commands. When we don't have those, before we know those, there's a sense in which sin lies dead. It's not aroused to do those things before we know that they're wrong. Again, it needs to be qualified in certain ways, but as a general principle. Does that make sense? Okay. Then, B, 9B, but when the commandment came, sin came alive. You picture like a serpent inside your heart. You know, that's what sin's like. It came alive when it heard the command, ah, I want to do that right? Sin came alive and I died. And I think his, his point is upon hearing the commands of God, the sinful nature desires to break those commands. And when that desire is indulged, it results in the penalty of death, right? The wages of sin is death. Now it's talking in a sort of progression way here. Obviously, as those in Adam were born under condemnation, were born spiritually dead, but and, and this is what leads commentators to go, what exactly is Paul talking about here, right? Is he talking about his own experience? Is he talking as if he were Adam? Is he talking as if he were Israel? You know, there's all kinds of debate about this. But I think in general, we all understand basically that experience of sin, sort of certain sinful desires being dormant until you actually learn what's wrong from God's commands, and then all of a sudden you're stirred up to do those very things. A a classic sort of quintessential example of that would be sexual transgression, right? That as you grow older and as you gain knowledge of what is wrong in that area, your heart is drawn out to do what God forbids in that area. He, draw, he uses the example of coveting. But I think that we can kind of see that experience in general. And then he says, in this way, verse 10 and 11, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Sorry, we'll leave off verse 12 here. I'll focus on verse 11. I think his point is that the old covenant law, that promised life, you remember in Leviticus 18.5, Paul cited that verse in Galatians where he said, the text says something like, do this and you will live, right? And there's a sense in which the old covenant law had that promise of life. It was showing the way of life. But despite that, the very commands that showed you the way of life became the instrument through which sin within you brought you into death. Because your sinful nature doesn't want to do what the commands say, but the commands actually arouse a desire to do the opposite, 
and that leads you to death. So the commands which show you the way of life become the means by which your sinful nature brings you down into death. All right? And therefore, he says, so, the idea then is the fault is not with the law, but with sin. The law is not sinful. That's the objection he's answering. You can see now, what's the answer to the objection? Does that mean, Paul, that the law is sinful? No. The law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. The problem is not the law. The problem is sin within us. All right? So he answers that objection. We're already over time here. So let me just draw out a few applications here. Obviously, the main point is that this provides us with, as Christians, with another reason why we can't just continue living in sin, right? Remember that word or at the beginning? Here's another line of reasoning why we can't continue living in sin. Why? Because we belong to Christ in the new covenant, right? Like a woman who has who through the death of her husband is free to marry another. We have died to the old covenant law and we are, we are now free to be joined to Christ in the new covenant. And we now serve him in the new way of the spirit. And so he's pointing out, you're Christ's new covenant people and you have been enabled to obey him by the spirit. That's why you can't continue living in sin. It'll be a contradiction of what is true of you. It also teaches us to understand our own sinfulness, right? In the, in the midst of a world which says people are basically good, it says no. <laughs> it gives you a much more sober and realistic and accurate perception of who we really are by nature. We've got our sinful nature craves, is thrilled by, is aroused by God's commands to do the opposite. Our sinful nature is transgressive. And so that shows us that the ultimate source of sin is not external. You know, I don't sin because I grew up in a bad home or because I was oppressed by societal structures. I sin because I got a problem in my heart, right? <laughs> now, that doesn't mean that those external factors didn't contribute to the problem. But the ultimate source of sin is within, not without. And it also helps us to understand our fundamental need for regeneration. If this is true about our nature, then what do we desperately need, right? We don't just need better circumstances. You know, if I had a better wife, I, I, would, I would be much less wretched. If I had kids that were more obedient, I wouldn't be so angry all the time. If my job was was better, right? If I actually enjoyed my job, I wouldn't be come home so foul, right? No. You could put that old sinful nature in any kind of circumstances. It's still going to bring forth bad fruit that lead to death. The change we need is internal, not external. Hence, that glorious promise of the New Testament, of the New Covenant. They shall all know the Lord from the least to the greatest. I will write my law upon their heart. That's what we need. We need to be able to serve him in the new way of the Spirit. And then finally, it teaches us not to disparage the law of God. You think of the psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. We should look at the commands of God in Scripture, and we should learn to love them. We don't say, Oh, they're so oppressive. I want to be free from them. No. What do you think the Holy Spirit's going to lead you to do? Well, you say, well, he's going to lead me to, not to keep the law, but to love. Well, what is the sum of the law? <laughs> right. And if we love God, what, what will that look like? Do we just make that up? No, it's revealed in the commands of God in Scripture. If you love me, keep my commandments. So... The law is holy and good. It shows us the way of life, right? The way to blessing. So we should learn to love it, not hate it because it stirs up sin within us at times. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. We are grateful for the scriptures and for this particular passage, Romans 7. We pray that you would use it to 
wash us. We think of how Christ washes us with the water of his word. We pray that you would wash us, that you'd sanctify us in thought and, and desire and action through your word. And we pray that we would go away from here freshly encouraged that we are bound to Christ in the new covenant, that we have been enabled by the indwelling Holy Spirit to serve him in a new way. But we are also sobered by the sinfulness of our remaining corruption and it's bent upon transgressing your commands. And we pray for sober mindedness and that we would do battle against our sinful nature throughout our lives, seeking to put off the old man and put on the new, putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the spirit, as Paul says in Romans 8. So please, we pray, help us to engage in that battle with fresh rigor and we Thank you that our, the debt of our sin is completely removed and now we strive to obey you, not under a, a, not out of a desire to establish a right relationship with you, but on the basis of the right relationship which you have established through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And now we walk in liberty and serve you in the freedom of Christ. And so we pray that you would encourage us and challenge us through these things this morning for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.